0: How did you work through having grown up with alcoholism? If you're a singer and a songwriter, you might have written a song about it. Welcome to episode 200 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Barbara, Laura, Sandra, Corey, Tony, and Gregory. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Barbara, Laura, Sandra, Corey, Tony, and Gregory, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today, and I'm joined by the singer-songwriter Bryn Black. We connected while she was on the road, and during our conversation, she was stopped at a rest stop so you may hear some background noises while she's speaking. I'd like to welcome Bryn Black to The Recovery Show. Bryn composed and sang a song titled Daddy's Medicine describing her experience gr- growing up with an alcoholic father. And Bryn, I just I have to say, that first line, like when I heard that, when you're five, you don't know.
1: When you're five, you don't know. There's
0: a I did not grow up in an alcoholic in home, but my children did. Yeah, they were five. When when it's it started quiet, really being obvious, uh, and uh, it just it reached out and grabbed me.
1: Mm, thank you.
0: So I'm going to start with the obvious question: like, what inspired this song? How did how did it come to be written?
1: Uh, it really kind of wrote itself, and then it like wrote me kind of afterward. <laughs> um, so my dad, if his alcoholism got started getting really bad, probably around that same time when I was five, and then it spiraled just completely out of control. Um, By the time I was seven, and my mom, like the doctors, gave his liver like six months at max, and Mm -hmm. my mom said, "We have to go. Like I can't keep, I can't raise my girls in this, and I'm not gonna let them watch their dad die." So they divorced, and we moved to Virginia. And you know, after that, I had like a once a year dad, and then my he remarried. um, He met his wife, and she got sick in about 2011. She passed November 2012. And he relapsed about six months later. And he had been sober, or at least dry for like, almost 15 years. Like through her, her illness, she had cancer, you know, we had reconnected and we're really starting to come back together as a family. And then he relapsed. And it was like going through the trauma of being like five all over again, you know, and and, and so he said, I went down there that Thanksgiving and, and he was just in a really bad place. And he said, Brittany, I need help. Like, can I come up to Nashville? Cause I had a friend go to the Cumberland high rehab facility in Nashville. And mm-hmm. you know, I live there. So he was like, I, your friend's doing so well. Like, can, I just, I want to go there and it's close to you. And you know, will you help me? And I, I said, of course, you know, and so three weeks later, I'm there with my two half-brothers that we flew up and going through the family program. And that was the first, the first day, you know, they're talking about this stranger that lives in your home. And it was like it, everything just clicked. And I like re saw my childhood all over again, just with this, this secret, like dark stranger, this dark passenger just weaving its way through all of us. And, and they showed us this, I don't know if you've seen the dance that uh, they did on, uh, not So You Think You Can Dance. Oh, maybe this, yeah, 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 So You Think You Can Dance, so Cerebral is Gravity.
0: Yeah, one of my listeners sent me that video just a couple of weeks ago. It's amazing.
1: Oh, it wrecked me. They asked us to watch it, and they said, imagine this as, you know, your loved one. And this was after they had explained, you know, learning all this about the disease. And I was just so fascinated, but then it just broke my heart. Yeah watching that like oh I just felt so much compassion and just like my heart just hurt for my dad because I just saw how much he had been suffering and it's still stuff and then she made us watch it again and she said think about yourself as a person
0: Hmm.
1: and uh, oh my gosh it was like yes this has been my whole existence because even though like my dad wasn't in our home since then it still ran my life is the the effects of the alcohol in our family and So it was just broken open. so after that, I, after the family program, I just said, like, I just need to write by myself, like, an hour a day and just see what comes. Mm -hmm. And so I had been going through my notes and on my phone for, like, ideas or whatever. And I saw the title, Daddy's Medicine, and I was like, oh, no, I would know if I wrote that song, like. I didn't write that song (laughs) because, you know, sometimes I like write songs in my sleep and I just write them down or whatever. Then I'll forget about them and come across them. And, and so I clicked on it and, (laughs) and there was a list of all of his medications that I had had to have like on hand. Cause he was back and forth in the hospital so much, you know, (laughs) I felt this like conviction. I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to write that song today. I'm not ready to write that song. And then, It just like came out, the whole thing just came out in like 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah, it was really powerful. And I just remember like looking at the paper, and just crying. And it was just like the little girl inside me. I just wanted to say all that for so long. Mm -hmm. It was really kind of like the cornerstone of my recovery. And I would never stepped foot in a 12-step room until that first week after going to the family program.
0: Yeah, that's what it took for me was going to a family program. It took me a little bit longer than it sounds like it took you because I was very resistant.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I I had just gotten to a place where I really saw how I was codependent Mm -hmm. and how it was like, it, it just terrified me because, you know, when they say like you're disconnected from yourself and how you put your life, like the value of your life ahead and like I was putting myself in dangerous situations and didn't even... Really feel like it, it didn't. I wasn't never scared. Like some uh, drug addict, you know, a gangster guy showed up at my on my front door at ten o'clock at night when I had the flu. Well, this is while my dad was in rehab, so it was like that uh, a week before the family program. Mm-hmm. And I had the flu, and I answered the door, and the guy said he needed a ride to the grocery store, and I let him in my because I thought I was helping him.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I let him in my car. And drove him to the grocery store. And then he asked me to go pick up this girl. And we drove through, like, the, I, I'm pretty sure I took him on, like, to get some drugs or something. Because it took him, like, in an abandoned house. And then it was just, it was so surreal. And, I, like I said, I thought I was helping them. And I thought I did a good deed and all the things. And then the only program they talked about, you know, how, it, like, that happened. And so that whole scenario flashed back in front of me. And I just felt so terrified. Wow. Like, I felt the after effects of like, I should have felt that scared and just not answered my door or called the police or something, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I did not And so I was like, I have to do whatever I can. Cause that's not who I am. I don't want to, I don't even know how long I've been living like this, but I don't want to live like this. <laughs>
0: yeah. I want to circle back a little bit. You said you kind of became aware or your father's drinking started getting bad when you were five. And then, your mother left when you were seven, so you were sort of living with it in the house for just a couple of years, and it's just amazing to me how strong that influence can be, even just from what seems, I mean, I guess when you're five, a couple of years is like a huge fraction of your life, but still, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, um, and there was a lot of like traumatic things going on, like we, we lived in Miami, and Herky and Andrew hit at the same time, like lost our house and had to live with our grandparents for six months in a different state. And dad was going back and forth, but he just was, you know, he became very violent too. And my dad's not a violent person. And so when he's like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. And so when he drank, it was just, it just was complete chaos. And then my sister had adolescent bipolar And that started coming about at the same time. And so it was like the transfer of like that trauma to then when when we moved, you know, Jordan's stuff kind of started exploding a little bit too. And so it's, yeah, it was just hard. And then it never really, it never really hit me. I just always felt like dad kind of gave up and chose that life over us. You know, like he didn't, I always felt like he didn't fight for us you know, even through the past couple of years, this time around, you know, dad and I are much closer about it because we can just talk openly about the disease and our recovery processes and everything. But I realized that it wasn't that he didn't fight for us. He just didn't feel like he was worthy of fighting for us. He felt like we were better off without him. And that shame is so heavy and it kind of, I mean, and not that it made it okay or was it, any kind of excuse would allow me to really empathize with him and offer forgiveness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that learning, learning about the disease and starting to see our loved one as somebody who really doesn't want to be doing what they're doing. I mean, that, that was key for me, I think.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, in the, my dad's case, like, you know, I can't speak for anybody else because every situation is different, but in his case, it's not like he's a social drinker, you know, he doesn't go out, you know, he's not partying it up. Like he's literally just self-medicating to the point to where he's like sick and passes out. And, you know, he hallucinates and it's just, it's it's ugly. And, and he just, he doesn't, he doesn't like it at all. You know, he just wants to get it over with, you know, Mm -hmm. he just gives in to the the demon and then it takes over. Mm -hmm. Um, and his was a very fast progression. You know, some people, it's it's over time and it's slow. And, you know, with my dad's case, it was pretty much like overnight. Wow. You know? Yeah. I think both sides are just equally as bad. It's like, I don't know, slow trauma or like, you know, the trauma all at once.
0: <laughs> I don't talk about this a lot with my children. We've talked about it some, but my daughter in particular just really doesn't want to go there. And I have to respect her. But in our case, it, 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 it came on slowly. I think that meant that like, I didn't notice it happening until it was really bad. Right.
1: Right. If you're not, if you don't know somebody else that has gone through it, you know, like if you don't know the signs to look out for, you know?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Then then you don't really see like, Oh, this could be a serious issue. You think, oh, well someone's just going through a hard time or you know, they just here and there and then then you realize like, oh, there's more going on than what i really thought. Yep. Yep. And I have I have some friends that have gone through that too. Mm-hmm.
0: So there's a there's another line in here about a child's heart can tell the meaning of a yell.
1: But a child's heart can tell the meaning of a yell
0: my family, I was the yeller. That was part of my reaction to that disease. So I got very angry and I yelled a lot. Yeah. You know, this is something my daughter has told me. She said, you know, you would yell and I would just go in the other room because I was scared and I knew that that you would be okay later. I'm like, damn, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that person. I mean, I was that person. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That I still have some issues with with sound because my mom thought that I didn't, didn't hear anything, you know. But you feel it, yeah. And I, I would just my safe place was like in my closet or like under my bed, like and you know if there was like tension, I was like I just I would just stay in my room and I wouldn't be going I wouldn't go to sleep. And so she she always thought that I didn't never heard it. And so, you know, that she was controlling the situation mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she never came and talked to me about it. Like, you know, not putting it on the child, but just checking in and being like, hey, I know that things are hard right now. And like, just tell me what how you're feeling. What, you know, just having that open communication. Otherwise, like the kids just don't know. And so then they start to stuff at such an early age. they start to stuff it down. I had all this like, you know just stuffed emotional trauma by my body that like I didn't even know I would react to loud noises and when I started going through the recovery process and learning about that it was really heightened and so if I was like downstairs in my house you know in Nashville and my roommate dropped something upstairs I would just like tense up Mm -hmm. and I'd get really triggered and um, you know I was talking to my sister about it like Jordan I can't believe I do this be a new thing, and she's like, "Bren, you've always done that. What are you talking about?" And I just was so oblivious that that had always been a thing. And I have like another like weird compulsion about um, uh, cigarettes because my dad would like sit outside on the porch and you know just be oblivious, and, and I would step. I'd be like back, you know, barefoot walking around our house and step on all the, the cigarettes as like four, three or four years old probably. And and one time I think he like. I fell into it because he just, and he didn't even know. And I got like cigarette burned on my shoulder or something. And so like now as an adult, I've realized that like, if somebody throws out a cigarette in front of me, I have to step on it like, and, and make sure it's out. Like <laughs> it's, it's like weird compulsion. These
0: these things that <laughs> but, we learn as children. Yeah. It's really, they're really. Yeah. Strong.
1: But, but I just, but now I just like laughing myself about it. I'm like, whatever. I'm kind of doing the world. <laughs> stepping on people's cigarettes and have to give myself permission. To, not beat myself up. You can't fix everything, you know?
0: Yep. Yep. I'm looking at some of the lyrics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just, it's such a beautiful song, but anyway,
1: thank you. you've you probably heard that thank before. You so much. <laughs> no, I, I mean, everybody experiences it differently, honestly. And some people, uh, it makes them feel stuff that they're, pro- that they don't want to feel. And so they don't know how to respond to it. Um <laughs>
0: Well, I definitely feel stuff.
1: Yeah, but then some people are like, thank you for saying that.
0: Exactly, thank you. You know, I used to think that that my love could conquer alcoholism. The lyrics and the chorus here, they just, you know, they're so poignant how different my life would have been if my love were stronger than my daddy's medicine.
1: So that line still gets me.
0: And also in there is that wish to go back and change things, you know? Like, we want it to have been different. And, of course, it it is never going to have been different.
1: Right. And that's why, like, in the second verse, you know, I said, like, with a half-built heart, I turned out okay. And and I, I, I thought about changing the course, but that all came out so effortlessly. And I really think that's how so many of us feel. Yeah, you know, and and it doesn't, it does just because I turned out all right. Does not mean that I don't still feel like I wish I could have loved him more to like take away that pain? Yeah. You know, we all want to take away the pain of the people we love.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's honest feelings. It, I mean, I'm not saying I shouldn't feel that way because feelings are feelings, right?
1: Right. Yep.
0: I understand that, that hope, that wish is not something that's going to happen. And I can work to sort of let go of the pain that goes with it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that, it, that the feeling's still not there. You know what I
1: mean? Oh yeah. You know, I think we all go through those, those times in our lives where we're like, yeah, man, things would have been so, you know, or wouldn't, you know, but, but we don't stay there. I think it's important to like reflect And, you know, go through all that part of it for me has been processing and and grieving the loss of expectations, you know, because you you have that. You have the expectations of like what your life would have been like or what, you know, a perfect family looks like or a perfect relationship looks like. My God, I believe in God that made perfect people. I think God made us to be imperfect because God's the source is the only perfect thing. Because if if we were all perfect, why would we need God? You know, so that's been a huge revelation for me that's come through this this process and if just releasing that idea that everything including people has to be perfect because if we love the imperfect and we just seek to just be content with the imperfect then our lives are just so much more full because we just see people where they are and we love them for where they are and the growth and the beauty of growth and darkness and all that just like you know, continues to like surprise us and and my dad taught me that actually he told me when he, we were checking him into the first rehab he's been through a few over the over the past few years he still sticks to it to this day he says I think people in recovery or people that are working towards recovery they live a much more fulfilled life and a much more full life yeah you know so if we have we've never been through the struggles then we wouldn't have like the true meaning of what it is to like live.
0: Yeah. I still think like everybody can benefit from a 12 step program, but the only way that Mm -hmm. I was able to get here was to go through the pain because it's work. Yeah. It's work, you know, and I'm lazy guy.
1: Yeah. It is work.
0: When I had to do it, I was so glad I did.
1: We all would want to sit on a beach somewhere, but
0: yeah, I wish.
1: Yeah. I had to get over the ego. That was a big thing for me is the, the first like month when I, you know, cause for a long time you think, Oh, it's just the alcoholic. It's everybody else. It's everybody else. But then you realize, Oh wait, it's me, you know? And so, you know, when I realized that, you know, I had all these character traits too, that were, weren't what I wanted, the person I wanted to be, man, oh, I was so distraught. I just felt the world's worst person. And I just cried for like two days mm-hmm. going like, oh, my God, I just, I can't believe I've hurt all these people. And, like, you know, and then I had to tell myself, like, you did the best you could with what you got. You give yourself a break here, you know. But those the ego, man, that'll really throw you for a loop.
0: So you talked a little bit about how people hear this song. Mm-hmm. What kind of responses do you get? How is it received when you perform it for people?
1: Uh, when I perform it, it's, I actually, I've performed it in a lot of different settings. I've played it in bars. I've played it at festivals. i played it actually at different rehab facilities. I played it for a family program and the family program, uh, that was surreal because a couple of people like walked out in the middle of it, you know, it's their first day at the family program and they're there, they're mad. Right. And I, I prefaced it by saying like two years ago, I was sitting right where you guys are and I was mad that I was there. I was mad I was giving up my time to be here for somebody else that they shouldn't have even been here in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, but this song came out of it and this was my experience. And during that, you know, I saw a couple of people walk out and I just kind of started going in my head going like, Oh, I suck. And why did I choose to play this year and all this? And then those two people came up to me afterwards and said like, thank you so much. I just had to walk out cause I was just crying and I just needed to cry. And, those are all the words that I wanted to say to my dad and my husband and now my son here. And she's like, nobody's ever put words to how I feel. Yeah. You know, it, we all, it, a lot of songs have been written about all the other aspects of it, but never from that, that place. Cause it cause I, I don't think anybody's really felt like it's shaming. I never want it to come across as like shaming my dad. That's mm-hmm. not.
0: Yeah. I certainly don't, don't read it that way. I don't I don't hear it that way.
1: Oh good. You know. um, but but other people, you know, like um, a friend of mine, I was playing it at a bar and he came up and he said, Brent, thank you so much for sharing that. He was like, I sort of at this particular bar. You know, I have a three year old little girl who is probably wondering why I'm choosing this over her most nights. And he's like, I don't have a problem, but I know that I just want to go a girl more now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people are really able to put their own stories no matter what it is into the song. And, and that's what's been the coolest thing because now for such a long time. It was my, it was my story and my song and it was, my therapy was singing it. Mm-hmm. And then now when I sing it, it's, it's more about letting it just be this open space for other people to put their journeys into it. And it just, it surprises me every time. At least, at least one or two people every time I sing it come up and say, "That's my story too." Then we hug and we cry together.
0: (laughs) I wonder if, if I was was in the audience, if I would have the courage to do that. You know,
1: some people wouldn't, and it's just open ended, and that's kind of how I preface it. I just say, like, "This is my story, and my family's story," and that's kind of it. Just so hopefully, people can let it bring up whatever it does. Because some of some people, you know, have never put thought to. How they grow up. You know, we're everybody's still kinda of going through the motions a lot of times. So mm-hmm. certain songs, you know, they just kinda of tap on our heart a little bit and you kinda have of to sit there and go, like, whoa, what is that feeling? I don't know what that is. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. You know, I got the I got an email from I guess, I don't know, she's your publicist or something.
1: Oh, Dea? Yeah, Dea. Mm-hmm. A few
0: weeks ago. And I thought, well that that sounds interesting, you know, that would be kinda of cool. And it took me a while to actually like click on the link to play the song.
1: Mm hmm. Especially as a dad, I'm sure it's a little, you know, it hits a different space. Well,
0: oh, my kids are grown and gone, but you know.
1: But still, where was your kid?
0: And so. I would be reading it on my phone while I was in the bus or something, you know, and and not a place I could I could just do that, right? And mm-hmm. and I finally did, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I, I I have to do this. I have to do this, and and I was like, oh, I don't know if I I don't know if I can do this. Like, like you know, she's like a, a musician, a performer, and and I'm just a guy with a with a podcast. I mean, what the hell?
1: Hey, I'm just a girl that sings songs. So. Yeah, <laughs> I know. We all see ourselves that way, don't we? I know. Pedestals are so weird. Yeah. How like you know, everybody puts us all on different pedestals, and we're like. Why did I not ask for pedestal? You know, (laughs) but I do it too. I'm the worst at putting people on pedestals, and I like don't reach out because of it. It's just bad. Still working on that.
0: Yeah. So I'm glad I did. I really am.
1: Uh, But thank you for saying that.
0: Many of the people who listen to the podcast are, you know, still living with the effects of alcoholism. I just wonder, maybe what you would say to somebody like that is to sing the song. I don't know. I mean, what do you say to somebody who's who's still struggling?
1: I mean, for me, I I know that I process things through writing. I've always journaled. And and even, like, songwriting was really hard for me. Like, I I, I remember I wrote my first song in, like, fifth grade, similar to how I wrote Daddy's Medicine. It just, like, came out. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know anybody that had ever written a song before, so I just felt weird. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And I ripped it out of my journal. And at first, I remember being so excited of, like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, I just wrote a song, and Mm -hmm. you know, and then I ripped it out of my journal and and hid it under my mattress. And it was always that thing in the back of my head of like, Ooh, don't look under my mattress. Cause that's there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I never told anybody about it. And I think I blocked it out until I started going through my recovery process. And then I just, I just felt so like, why, why did I do that? You know, it's cause probably never felt safe enough too. but like, mm-hmm. but then I realized I wasn't doing that for anybody else. I was doing that for me. I just, I wish I would have just trusted myself a little bit more if anybody's struggling just to like trust yourself and trust that like it's okay to not be okay I think I had to give myself that permission and that really was very freeing for me and I still do I had to just like sit with myself and be like it's okay to not be okay like you kind of have to you got to go through it in order to to get out on the other side and you know I was so used to to the, the storm that I didn't even know what the other side looked like. That was scary. It's like, oh, sunny things, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, oh, that might burn. Like, no, not too much light. But then just it, once you start shedding a little light onto the shame, it just, it takes it away. And it's this crazy feeling. It's that that feeling of the peace that knows no understanding. It, it is that. Mm-hmm. And, and just to know that that's possible. And even though it sounds like some people might think it's a crack of baloney or, you know, it's just a bunch of words, but it really is this thing of like when you're just, you just acknowledge that there's pain there, that you just get filled with this, this inner peace that you can't explain and it sits with you in that pain. And, and that just opened me up and was like so beautiful that it, it made me hopeful in a way and so I just started journaling and just whatever came out I just journaled all the time and um, gratitude journal was like one of the biggest things for me too just little things here and there you know and checking in with myself like if I start to get really triggered even now I'll I'll do this all the time I just will be like hey how do I feel spiritually, spiritually, physically and just to see that on paper Mm -hmm is, is really freeing. Like when you see like, man, I feel achy today. I feel hungry. I feel mad. I feel sad. I feel grateful. I feel connected spiritually, but like, I'm really, I'm really sad, you know, emotionally and mentally. I'm just really confused or, or fogged or whatever. But like to just see that on paper in a whole, it, that was really helpful and i think just to have those tools and to know that those tools exist when people are going through stuff to have something to reach for and and use just the little you know two degree shifts here and there really help yeah so i just hope they know that's possible
0: yeah thank you so much
1: sorry if i i probably didn't answer your question well i just
0: Uh, you totally answered my question in your way
1: (laughs) okay yeah no i like talked around the question (laughs)
0: No, I mean what I heard there was, was about getting to, to to trust yourself, to know yourself, and to be able to mm-hmm. to look and say, How am I? Yep. Those are really those are really powerful tools that we can use. Yeah. When we're not sure how we're supposed to feel sometimes.
1: Right. I I asked uh my friend was saying this uh the other day. She kept saying, like, oh, I'm not supposed to feel that and I I looked at her, I said, who told you you were supposed to feel anything? (laughs) And why are you letting them tell you what you're supposed to feel? Because you're the one feeling it. And she was like, wait, yeah, nobody ever told me I was supposed to feel one way or the other. I just, I I think I told myself I was supposed to feel that, you know, but we got to have those conversations with ourselves sometimes just to kind of break that, this, the shame cycle.
0: Well, thank you for your time. I really, I really appreciate it.
1: Oh my gosh, no, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your story and uh, for what you're doing for the, the world and putting all this out there and just, you know, allowing it to be a space for people to come and feel less alone. I think that's really great what you're doing.
0: And thank you again, Bryn, for taking the time to share your experience, strength, and hope with us. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery where I'll talk about how recovery works in my daily life and in my meetings. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. My meeting yesterday really illuminated some stuff that was happening during the week. I really love it when when that kind of thing comes together. We were talking about step seven, which is humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. It's hard to talk about step seven without also talking about step six, at least for me, because in step six, we become ready, and in step seven, we ask, and, it's, and you can't ask without being ready. So we ended up talking a bit about being prepared and about maybe the ways in which some of us have trouble being prepared and doing things at the last minute. And it reflected for me a couple of things in my life that had happened during the week. We are starting a second large project and another team that I'm involved with is at work. So now I've got two big projects going on and, and the second one is just getting started. And at the beginning that's the scary part for me. Once we get going, I'm good with it. We we know what we're going to do and we're moving along and we're getting things done. And, you know, maybe we're coming up with new things we didn't think about, but it's, it's a process and it's familiar, but this whole new thing. And we have to figure out what we need to do and what order we need to do things in and how much time it might take, how many resources it might take. What should we do first? What should we do second? What, what might we want to change? Because we have an opportunity. We're, we're replacing a legacy component. Sorry, that's that's tech speak for an an old thing that we want to make new. Sort of like you know, repairing some boards in a deck, or maybe replacing a whole deck on your house, or something like that. Anyway, we have an opportunity to look at also the way in which that component doesn't meet our needs, and and what what our needs are, what our needs might be going forward, so that we can be prepared. And that's all scary, big, scary stuff for me, because I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I feel like I'm not good. I feel like I'm not worthy. I feel like I can't do it. And that's that's sort of, I don't know, probably many of us have that feeling. I've heard that expressed. I had found an article about doing this work in general from a consulting firm. So I brought it to the group, and we took the whole day on Thursday, starting to work through the process that they suggested in that article and th- that was really helpful it turned out it gave us it gave us a plan it gave us a, a, a process to follow to start to pull out the the structure of what we need to do and the first part was actually where are we now and and the article was very clear that sometimes when you're ready to change things you don't really think about where you are where you're starting from what you need to keep and what you what you want to change and so we spent pretty much most of the day thinking about and talking about and writing about where we are. And it was a great day. At the beginning, this sort of blank slate, I don't know what to do with it. And at the end, we had a couple of walls covered with with writing. And, and one, of, one of the members of the team had actually scribed them into his computer, which was awesome. So thinking about that, and then the other thing that happened this week was recording this podcast. It, again, felt like something I had not done before. That I was going to be talking to somebody who was a public, a public figure about something they had done that related to our recovery and their recovery, it was scary to think about making a making a call to this to this person who's like this singer, you know? Ah. And I think you heard that actually as I was talking to Bryn towards the end of the call. And so I prepared. I started several weeks ahead, I had gotten an email from her publicist saying, Hey, would you like to talk to Bryn about this song that she wrote? After I listened to the song, I was absolutely yes. But I, I was like, I've never done an interview exactly before. I mean, yeah, I have conversations with people, but interview, that's scary. Okay. Turned out it wasn't, but that's that's the feeling. I'm not worthy, right? And so I prepared and prepared. I looked at other interviews she had done about the song. I took notes. I actually structured how I might run the conversation, questions that I wanted to make sure got asked, and then when it came to it i was able to relax and i was able to just lean into the conversation and let it go where it went and and it was i i really feel like having done that preparation was very helpful and coming back to the meeting and the steps step 6 is preparation step 6 is for me step 6 is about getting ready for step 7 it's about accepting who i am faults and all so that in step 7 i can then say here i am I can be, have that humility and be ready to be changed however my higher power might, might choose to, uh, to lead me. So circling around, it was, it was really good for me to have that time in the meeting to sort of reflect back about how although I feel like preparation is hard for me, when I lean into it it's a good thing and, and the outcome is, is good. Looking ahead, uh, we had, might have been just last week uh, a listener wrote in and asked about the topic of how we use the principles and tools of the program in our everyday lives. And then my friend Eric, who is a frequent guest on the podcast, sent me an email with some topic suggestions, one of which is in all our affairs, i.e., how do we use the principles and tools of the program in our everyday lives. And then yesterday he sent me a text and saying, I'm preparing a lead for my meeting next week, and the topic is in all our affairs. And I was like, okay, three things, two from the same guy, but you know, three different days, three different prompts for that topic. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that next week. Uh, Eric's going to lead his meeting, and then hopefully we can take what he prepared along with whatever I think of, and we'll have an episode talking about how we use the program in our lives outside of the problem that we came to the program for. If you would like to contribute, if you would like to Share how you use the program in your life outside of recovery. I don't know, outside of recovery. I mean, recovery is my whole life, right? It's about my whole life. But outside of the uh, addict or alcoholic situation, how you use recovery at work, how you use recovery with non-alcoholic family members, how you use recovery with friends, how you use recovery when you get cut off on the highway, anything like that. You can call. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Or you can use the voicemail button on the website to leave a voice message directly from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. If you want to record a longer share, as some listeners have done recently, you can record on your phone uh, whatever voice memo app on the iPhone. I don't know what it's called on Android. And then email me. The audio file, and that that works pretty well also. But however you choose to contribute, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your experience, strength, and hope about today's topic of the song, Daddy's Medicine, or any of our upcoming topics, and especially about In All Our Affairs. Our website, which is therecovery.show, has all the information about the show, including and especially notes for each episode, which include links to the music that we talk about and for this episode there will be a link to the full music video for the song daddy's medicine and also a link to the uh, the music that i used for the the what we call bumpers in the trade the uh, the int- introduction of the show the the uh, little bit at the end of the show and in between the segments <laughs> Some emails this week. Barbara said, I'm very glad to have found this podcast. Someone mentioned it in a meeting when I'm out of town. Well, actually, just taking a walk here. It is wonderful to listen to. Thanks, Barbara. And, And thank you, Barbara. Earl wrote, Dear ones, I read your website and I'm saving up for a book. Everyone needs a little or a lot of this ministry. Blessings. Thanks, Earl. That's why we do it. Heidi left a comment on the show notes for the last episode, which was Roll Away the Stone. That's episode 199. And you can find that at therecovery.show slash 199. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for your podcast and for this episode about rolling away the stone. I've been in Al-Anon quite a few years now, but still haven't gotten to the point where I can say, yes, my stone is completely rolled away. Yes, I've totally let the light in. I do feel I let the light of life and recovery in, and my stone rolls away some. And then I get uncomfortable or scared and block myself and that light off again. I go back to old habits of zoning out and avoiding. The difference is that I don't stay there as long as I used to. I wonder if this is common or if it shows I'm not doing enough. Time and time again, I hear people at meetings, etc., talk about how they aren't afraid anymore. And it just isn't me. I'm still afraid. I just have tools and I've learned I have choices. Thanks again, Heidi. And yeah, so I just want to say that for the purposes of the narrative last week, um, I told a linear story, beginning, middle, end. In reality, it is, it is cyclic. It is up and down. Uh, there were days after, that day, where I found serenity for the whole day. There were days when I was afraid. There were days when I was angry and in and in despair. But as you say, they didn't last as long. I had tools. I could run through a gratitude list. I could go to a meeting. I could call a friend. And I could I could open back up and let some more light back in. So it's a process, and it just it takes as long as it takes. Maybe working harder, you get there faster. Maybe you don't. Um, I think you have to work at the pace that is comfortable for you. Ginger left a comment with a suggestion on our books page. She says, I have read many of the books on the list and continue to use them in my recovery. A book you may consider adding is Letting Go by David Hawkins. The author shares the process of letting go and surrendering that which blocks us from a power greater than ourselves then guides the reader to understand the map of consciousness through which we all experience life. I have read this book once, and I'm now reading it again with friends. So thank thank you, Ginger, for that suggestion. Right now I've put uh, a link to that book in her comment, which is at the bottom of the book's page, if you scroll to the bottom, and I will I will check it out and probably stick it up in the, uh, in the list of books above uh, once I've had a chance to read it. I want to thank everybody who is sending me shares about your experience in the Adult Children of Alcoholics program. I'm getting ready to to build an episode using these. So if you want to also contribute, please visit therecovery.show slash contact for information about the various ways in which you can share your experience, strength, and hope with the Adult Children program. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly just like Barbara, Laura, Sandra, Corey, Tony, and Gregory did. And thank you again for your your generous contributions. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening to us, we are here for you.